So Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When I was a little kid, it was good to have heroes. It was fun to have heroes. And I remember being taught about different things about our forefathers and hearing over and over about George Washington and cutting down the cherry tree. And then, and then I cannot tell a lie when he was questioned about it. I remember learning about uh, people like Abraham Lincoln and, and his determination to, uh, even at the cost of many lives, to recognize all people as free within our nation. And there are many people that I looked up to as kind of heroes and learned lessons from as I was a child. But you know what I found that as I grew older, I found that I also maintained heroes. I might not have called them that all the time, but I remember uh, when I was working with Ted Weinberg down in Owatonna and I was going to college, the subject matter of uh, one of our professors came up in a conversation, and his name was Sam Taloyan, Dr. Taloyan, and he was our missions professor. And I remember talking to him about it one time, and Ted Weinberg said, that man's my hero. And I hadn't really thought about really the concept of a hero too much in adulthood, but I thought, you know what, that's not a bad idea. And I started to think about some of my professors, different character traits about different ones. But I remember thinking, you know what, if I can leave college and just have had a little bit of each one of these people rub off on me, it will have been a worthwhile experience. So in a very real sense, they became heroes to me. Um, I think of my parents. I'm 53 years old. But you know what, there's, there's still things that I learned from my parents in ways that I'm encouraged and grow from watching how my parents handle different situations and, and their heroes in my lives. You know, as we get older, our heroes take on little different shapes. They're not Superman or Batman anymore. They're a little bit more people with chinks in their armor themselves. And you, but you know what, it's a popular thing in our day to kind of tear down all the heroes, to kind of pull them all off the pedestals. And, you know, I don't know that that's such a good idea because it's a lot of through the examples of our heroes that things like honor and courage are reinforced in our society and reinforced in our own hearts and minds and lives as well. And no, our heroes aren't perfect. Our forefathers that went before us aren't perfect. And you know what? As we look through Hebrews chapter 11 today and, and focus on Noah, Noah wasn't perfect. In fact, I dare say as we look at all the heroes of faith listed in the Bible, you can find chinks in all of their armor as well. You can find ways that each of them failed. And the ones that you cannot find a way that they failed, it's only because you don't know enough about them. Because they all fail at times. They're people. I love in the book of James when it talks about Elijah. And it talks about God hearing Elijah's prayer. And then it turns around and says, you know what? Elijah is a man of, well, the King James Version says a man of like passions. What it basically means is he's made of the same stuff that you are. And that's a neat thing about the heroes as we look at Hebrews chapter 11, is that these, Hebrew, these heroes are listed here for us to gain encouragement from. Look at how they succeeded. Look at how they stood up in faith. Look at how they conquered in faith. Look at how they were able to suffer it well in faith. And the whole point, the whole time, is they're made of the same stuff you are. The whole point he's trying to get across these people, if they can do it, you can do it. In fact, he's pointed out to these Hebrew Christians back at the end of chapter 10 that you've already been doing it. You were succeeding well. Now they're starting to fall back a little bit. He says, look, you were doing it. You just need to get back on track here. Then he starts giving all these positive examples of how we can do it. Well, in doing that, you know, one of the things that we need is we need to be able to look up to our heroes of the faith. And that's what we're going to consider here this morning. So as we look through these, these heroes, they're not perfect heroes. They're men of like passions. There are people made of the same stuff that you are and that I am, which means 
the same kinds of victories that they are able to achieve through faith are victories that we can achieve through faith. And so we need to take encouragement from that. Well, as we look at these heroes of the faith, the first two we don't know a lot about, but we do want to learn what we can from them. What we learned from him last week is that both of them conquered death. It says about Abel that even though he's dead, yet he speaks. And it said about Enoch that he walked with God and then he was not. God took him just because he walked in faith with God. And so we learned that both of them overcame death. Well, as we look at it this week and see what we learned from their life, in Abel we see a worship of faith. Because the Bible says that Abel brought before the Lord the right sacrifice. He, brought, he worshiped God well. If we have faith, if we're standing firm in our faith, we will worship God well. If we go back to Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, it says, In the course of time came brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so as we look at this passage, we see that Cain and Abel, two brothers, come before God to worship. And they each bring a sacrifice. Now, what is the difference in the sacrifice? It says that Cain was, he was a farmer. And Abel was more of a rancher. He was keeping the herds. And so Cain brought from the fruits of his labor, from the, the the plants of the ground. And he brought some of the harvest and he brings that before God as an offering. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions that go with it. And Cain's offering is rejected and Abel's offering is accepted. What is the difference? And theologians wrestle with this a little bit because on one hand, the difference could be that Abel, Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice. It required a death of an innocent animal to pray, pay for the sins of guilty people. At the same time, it's a little bit up in the air because we're not sure exactly what the offering was supposed to be for. And if you look in the Old Testament, you've got to look forward. And it's always, it's always tough to judge a previous incident by something that's revealed later. But later when God reveals His will through Moses, there's blood sacrifices. But there's also like first fruit sacrifices. There are times when they bring grain offerings. And so it could kind of depend on what this offering was supposed to be. So some people think that uh, the difference in offering, Abel's was accepted because it was a blood sacrifice, and Cain's wasn't. Cain's being the work of his own hands, doesn't cut it. Others believe that it wasn't so much of what they brought as a matter of what was in their hearts. That Abel's looked at in this passage as bringing his offering through faith, maybe Cain not so much. And so it's really more what was going on inside of them than it was the sacrifice itself that they brought. You know what, I I would entertain this idea. Maybe it's kind of both. One thing that we know for sure is that Cain knew what the right thing to do was. We have recorded for us exactly what God wants us to know. There are other things that happened that God didn't preserve for us. Just like when the Apostle John wrote his gospel, at the end of the book, he says, Christ did so many more things than these that if we were to write all of them down, the world itself wouldn't be able to contain the books probably. But what we've written, we've written enough for you to believe and have life through believing. Well, that's what we see through the Bible. What were Cain and Abel told about the offering that they were supposed to bring to God? We don't know. But we do know they were told something. Because God says to Cain, look, you know that if you do right, you'll be accepted. If you don't do right, sin's crouching at the door. 
He knew what the proper sacrifice was. Whether it was a matter of the intent of his heart or whether it was a matter of the actual sacrifice that he brought, he knew the right way to do it. And he didn't do it. Like I said, it may have been both things. Because both things do kind of go together when you think about it. Because if somebody is not worshiping from the heart, they don't tend to pay much attention to what are the rules or what is the proper sacrifice or what is the right way to go about worshiping. There's people that are worshiping from the heart that make it a priority in their life and then they worship appropriately and they worship acceptably because the desire to do so is there in their heart. It says that Abel brought the firstborn and the fat portions. In other words, he's bringing the best. And it says about Cain, he brought some stuff. You know, it's it's more generic. It's not the first fruits of the harvest, or it's not the best of the harvest. He just brought some stuff. He doesn't seem to be putting the focus into it. And you know what? If you're not putting the focus into it, it may very well be that you didn't even bring the right sacrifice that you should have. You didn't pay enough attention to do the right thing. We see in Abel, a guy that had faith. By faith, he offered the acceptable sacrifice. You know what? When our heart's in it, When we're worshiping, then it's important to us. It's a priority to us. And so if it's a priority to us, then we worship well. So in Abel, we see the worship of faith. In Enoch, it points out a walk of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, about Enoch, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you go back to Genesis and start to look for Enoch, you start to see the descendants of Adam listed out, and it follows a certain family tree. It follows Adam to his son Seth. And then from Seth, it follows it down to one of his sons, to one of his sons, to one of his sons, right down through the line. It keeps telling you how many years that the father lived until he had a son. And then the name of the son. And then it says he continued to have sons and daughters after that. And he lived, and it tells you how much longer he lived after that. And it keeps following that pattern. So-and-so lived this long, and they had this son, and then lived lived this many years, and then he died. And so-and-so, and then that person lived this many years, and then he had this son that we're going to trace the family tree through. And then he lived this many years, had other sons and daughters, then he died. And then that person lived this long, had this son, then had other sons and daughters, lived so long, and then he died. Until you get to Enoch. Instead of saying Enoch lived this long, it says, and Enoch walked with God. Every time we're in all the other people, it says he lived this long. It says Enoch walked this long with God, and then he had a son. And then he walked with God this long, and then it doesn't say he died either. It says, and he was taken. When you think about the things that you're doing, Enoch had to do a lot of the same kind of things you're doing. You know, he had to have some occupation. He had to eat. He had to do chores. He had to do different things. All of us humans have to do. But as he was doing all those things, he was walking with God. It's like Judy was talking about earlier, learning there's new ways that God is there for her because she's just in all the things that she's doing and the decisions that she's making, she's just walking with God and she knows he's there with her so she can just talk to him as she goes. And, and that's what Enoch was. God's going to describe him and he's not even going to say very much about him. He's only going to say really that he lived, had a son and lived some more. What's the best way you can describe Enoch's life? Walking with God. Doesn't it make quite a picture? Lisa and I, for years, have, have walked, and we do about three miles. She, she wanted to walk for exercise. I walked to walk with her. And when you walk out there, you, you talk about things and stuff like that. And when you think about walking with somebody, that's, that's really what it is. 
I mean, I, we live in a spot where a lot of people walk across the front of our house. So what are they doing? They're walking and they're talking. Well, that's the image that is given of Enoch here. He walked with God. He was relating with God as he lived out his days on this earth. And so we see that walk of faith. But then, right after that, it goes to Noah. We look at verse 7. The focus that it is is his work that he does for God. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Remember that last week we used this passage a little bit to confirm for us what faith is. And we talked about how faith is the ability to see the unseen. That even though I can't see it yet, I recognize it's true. How when Noah was told there's going to be a flood, he'd probably never even seen rain. He did this tremendous work of God. He built this ark. And that ark was an amazing work of God. About 75 feet was the width of the ark. 44 feet tall, over 400 feet long. About a football field and a half or so. It's going to take Noah over 100 years to build this boat. It's three floors tall. I just picture Noah building that big ship up on dry land. And everybody's, man, what are you building, Noah? I'm building a ship. Well, how are you going to get that thing in the water? Well, there's going to be a flood. How do you explain a flood to people that have never seen rain? I remember when Weinbergs went to Africa. And you remember when when we would pray for them? And they would say at certain times of the year, it's getting down to 100 at night. I remember talking to Ted on one of their trips back one time. And he said, you know what? It's really hard to uh, explain ice to people in that kind of a climate. He says, I tell them that our lakes freeze and you can drive on them with your pickup. And they're like, what? (laughs) No no concept. Well, that's what Noah's doing. Hey, it's going to rain. It's going to flood. This boat right where it's sitting is going to be floating. We better repent. And for 120 plus years, they laughed at him. They ridiculed him. And he wasn't quiet about it. We don't get it. We, we have our, you know, our river. I just drove over it yesterday and noticed all the rocks that were out. The river's way low. And then we get a little bit of rain and that thing starts shooting up. They never had that experience of seeing that. So it's unseen to them. And they weren't buying it. Noah had the ability to see the unseen because he knew God was faithful. I think we have kind of the same problem in reverse with some of these things. I know when when we talk to our kids in release time and stuff like that, and we teach them about the early days, and we talk about the creation of the world, and then we talk about these chapters that we're looking about with Noah, and and you're talking about people that lived hundreds of years. The longest one that we know about, Methuselah, 969 years. He lived, really? You know what? Some people in society look at you and say, I don't know. Why? Because they can't see it. It's not our experience. We don't live 969 years. It's just because we get used to seeing something one way. In Second Peter chapter 3, it talks about people with that problem looking back. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Talking about the second coming of Christ, of course. Here's the, the part. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So he says, look, these these people are going to reject the second coming of Christ and the judgment that comes with it because of this presupposition that they have. They assume that everything from the very beginning, everything has always gone exactly as it's gone before. And so they say because everything has gone how it's been going, it's going to continue to go as it's been going. And so there is no second coming of Christ. There is no return. This is foolishness. But, then he goes on to point out, for they deliberately overlook this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. You see, the point that he's making is things haven't always gone on. He says at one point this world didn't even exist, and then it was created. But you want to you forget that fact for some reason. He says, and then not only that, after it was here and people populated the earth and then their actions became wicked, This world was judged and it was destroyed by the waters of the flood. And what he's warning them about is that when Christ comes back, there's going to be another judgment. And that judgment won't happen by water destroying the earth. It's going to happen by just fire destroying the earth. So things haven't been going on just as they have always been. We've seen examples of God's judgment being exercised. And that's what's coming yet in the future. People in our day, I think, look back in the older details of the Bible and they say, really a flood that covered the whole earth? Really a boat that would fit all the animals in the world? Which actually, if you do the math, you could fit them all on the first floor. So there's plenty of room left for people and food. And so, uh, really, really people live 800 years old, 900 years old? That That can't be the case because it's not their current experience. We do the same thing with science even. Science is a great thing and it's really benefited us as a people. There's no doubt about it. But you know what? When you get into different theories, like actually it doesn't qualify as a theory, but evolution. Evolution is based upon a presupposition. The presupposition is that all things are natural processes. It's based on the principle that they call uniformitarianism, which means everything that's happening today is what was happening 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, a million years ago. What if everything wasn't happening the same way? then it completely pulls out the foundation of that whole theory. We get locked into what we can see, and we just get to where we kind of assume that that's the way that it always was. And he says that's not the way it always was. Noah was able to see what God was promising, even though he couldn't see it with his eyes. Well, there's five qualities of this faith that we see in Noah, and we're going to go through them quickly. The first one is a right attitude. The right attitude, because notice what it says about Noah in verse 7 here. Noah being warned by God of events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. Noah had this reverent fear for God. The Hebrews has just told us recently, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is somebody who ought to be feared, who ought to be awed and respected. I always cringe a little when I hear God referred to as like the big guy upstairs or something like that. You know, not, not, not because... It's necessarily using his name in vain or anything, but, you know, it just seems a little irreverent, a little bit of a slack way to refer to him. It says Noah had a reverent fear for God, a a respect. So not only did he have a right attitude, he also had right action. Right action. What did he do? He just obeyed, simple obedience. You know, when you read back in Genesis, it says that God gave him the plan for the boat. He gave him the dimensions of the boat, the floors on the boat. And what did Noah do? He just got to work on it. Not fully understanding, but trusting. You know, sometimes there's things in my life that come along that I have to handle, that I have to make decisions in. And i I got to admit, sometimes the Word of God doesn't really look like it's necessarily going to be in the best interest of mine to fulfill things that way. But you know what? That's just when we got to trust. That's when we got to obey. I think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. There's a lot of paradoxes in the Bible that it looks like, boy, it looks like we should go this way, but the Bible says go this way. And you find that when you go that way, wow, that really works. Well, that's what we, that's what we need to do. That's what Noah did. 
In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So what was Noah's task? Noah was just obediently building the ark. And the other thing that he was doing was proclaiming the truth of what it represented. It represented two things that were kind of heads and tails on the same coin. It represented the judgment of God that was coming, thus the need for the ark. And it also represented the salvation of God that was provided in the ark itself. And so Noah was fulfilling both of those things. I dare say that I think the tougher job would have been being that herald of righteousness, proclaiming, preaching. Because when all those people are making fun of you for building the boat, it's got to be hard to get a good audience. But you know what? He did both. So he had right attitude. He had right actions. He also had right motivation. It says that he did it for the salvation of, of his family. Now, I can't help but wonder, with the size that God had him build that boat and the room that was in there, there's room for people. By the time they loaded it with animals, I told you that would take up about the first floor. They loaded it with food and stuff for the animals and for themselves that they're going to need along the way. And there's, there's still some room. And so I don't know if this verse is actually pointing to his household as being his sole motivation of saving his family or if that's just recognizing that that is all who's going to be saved because God knew nobody was going to believe in him. And actually in the passage in Hebrews, it's after the fact. So it knows that nobody else believed in him. His motivation was salvation. He spent all those years building that boat, all that hard work building that boat. Why? To save, to save his household, to save his family, to save people from their sins. What am I doing to save other people? What am I doing to save my family? What am I doing to influence my children? What am I doing to influence my grandchildren? Lisa was just telling me about a book she found a week ago uh, about uh, we're looking forward to reading. In fact, we're thinking about doing a study if other people want to do it with us. Um, what it means to be a, an impacting grandparent, impacting your grandchildren for Christ. But also, what about the world around us? It says Noah was this preacher of righteousness. He was concerned about the salvation of the people around him as well. We see that's the very heart of God. If we look back to the incidents in Genesis chapter 6, it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It grieved God to his heart that mankind had gotten so corrupt that, it, that he needed to be destroyed, eternally judged. It grieved him to his heart. But Noah finds favor, and so God provides that salvation. In Second Peter, in the, after the passage that we read just a few moments ago about the scoffers, in verse 9 it says the reason God hasn't coming or that he's slow in getting around to coming back, says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It says that God isn't slow, he's patient. In First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey God, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Notice what it's talking about. It says when Jesus, when he died on the cross, for those three days that he was dead, where was he? What did he do? It says that one of the things that he did was he preached to the prisoners. And who are the prisoners? It was those people that disobeyed during the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And how does it describe God? 
While the ark was being built, God was patiently waiting. You know, you go back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. When God proclaims the judgment of mankind, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. He's talking about his judgment. The day the flood would come would be 120 years from that day. You recognize the patience of God? God said, it grieves me to my heart that I have created these people that now need to be judged. You know what? In 120 years, I'm going to do it. 120 years. Talk about giving somebody space to repent. Talk about giving somebody a second chance, an opportunity to change. 120 years he gave them. And they did not change. At the end of 120 years, how many people would be saved? Eight. But for those 120 years, Noah would preach righteousness. For those 120 years, Noah would build that ship, the vehicle of salvation. And for 120 years, he'd warn those people. Noah had the right motivation. If we're going to have motivation that is inspired by faith, we need to be concerned about the salvation of other people. We need to be concerned about the salvation of our children and our grandchildren, our other relatives, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, the people in our community. We need to be exercising that same kind of motivation. Well, not only that, but we also see he has a right position. It says, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. What does it mean he condemned the world? Well, we're going to talk about it a little bit more as we go farther on the next couple of weeks. Noah's righteous actions, his light shined and illuminated the darkness and showed how dark it was. His position, Noah being this person of righteousness, does not really fit in this unrighteous world. And a little bit later in the chapter, it's going to say all these people of faith recognize that this world's not their home. Did you notice that? When you came to Christ, did it, did it take very long before you started to feel a little not at home anymore? Or you felt a, a little bit that, you know, this world's not my home. I don't, I'm not looking at it through the same lens that I used to look at it through when I was lost. I don't feel as comfortable in it anymore as I used to feel like it before I came to Christ. I don't fit in as easy as I used to fit in. Can you imagine him building that boat and preaching righteousness in a very wicked generation? He didn't fit in at all. And that's what it says, he condemned the world. John MacArthur put it this way, he says, Against that wicked and cruel and dark world, Noah's life and testimony shined in glistening condemnation. There was a young man that once said about Socrates, he says, I hate you because every time I meet you, you show me what I am. You know, when we're in that kind of a position, we're actually in a good place. Peter told us in his first epistle in chapter 2, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, if you're living among people that don't share your values, you, be, you still hold those values. You still be honorable. He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so they're not going to talk too nicely about you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, they're not going to be able to argue the fact that they're good things that you're doing, even though they might not like you for doing them. In Matthew, Jesus told us, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Jesus says, look, when you don't fit in, feel good about it. Because then you're fitting in with a little bit different crowd of people. You're fitting in with the prophets, because that's the same way they've treated the prophets before you. And so a right position is what we see is involved in our faith. You know, we should not feel at home in the ungodly environment we used to live in when we were, when we were lost. And then lastly, the righteous reward. And righteousness was that reward. It says he became the heir of righteousness. 
And some people have debated, well, what does that mean? Is it actually talking about he gets this righteous world after all the wicked people are dozed out of it? But I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I think it's the righteous standing before God that Noah has, that the Bible clearly teaches throughout it, because he stood in faith, because he trusted God. He followed God. He had the right attitude. He had the right actions. He had the right motivation. He was in the right position. And because of that, he gets the right reward, that righteousness of Christ. It's encouraging to me as I strive to, to walk in faith before God, as I work on my attitude, I work on my actions, and I try to have the right motives, and, and I try to be in the right position before God, and you know, I get that same righteousness. I get that same reward. Let that strengthen us in our walk. Father, we're so thankful, so thankful for the opportunity that we have to worship you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to walk with you and the opportunity we have to work with you. And Father, we just pray that you'd strengthen us, give us the same strength of faith that that Abel did, that Enoch did, that Noah did, as we live out our life before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.